0: Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry.
1: You're guilty. And then he says to all the guilty people, you're you're not guilty. And so McDonald says, that's not what God does. That's a legal fiction. God doesn't ever say you're not guilty, guilty, into the guilty, not guilty. That's not, not you know, God is just. So, but I think that that is a sort of contractual, that's almost like the epitome of a contractual understanding of God, that actually there's a sort of legal fiction where mm-hmm. Jesus is, is condemned, where sinners are, are, are let go, and it's a pure fiction. It doesn't even appear anywhere in the New Testament
2: that I'm aware of. Think of Romans 8.1. There is now no <laughs> condemnation. What condemnation? He's not talking about a kind of works righteousness or a legal contract condemnation. He's talking about what he just spent a chapter describing, in which people are condemned to living under a lie, and it is a damnable sort of existence, a thing that they are doing to themselves, and they do not need to do. And so once we put the problem in this, we're masochistic, we're dealing in death, that we're neurotic all the things that we do maybe because of religion we don't need to do condemnation we don't need to do that agonistic struggle in which i would condemn myself in which i am in fact sacrificing myself for myself that economy of death is undone and that's the meaning this is the deep meaning of righteousness Campbell does a little bit of this, that what the word really in the Old Testament doesn't pertain to law and legal theory, it pertains to the fact of being made right in the face of chaos and death. And so death is a thing that we do to ourselves. It's a condemnation that we are freed from Mm. in Christ, and it's a real freedom. You don't need to do that. That sounds like good news. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I think we just create all of these problems. This reading is a very simple reading, and I think it just, Romans falls into place, unless I'm just, I keep waiting for one of you to say, well, wait a minute. Paul is saying a very simple thing. Here is the human predicament in which death reigns and sin reigns through death, right? Not the other way around. It's not, the oh, that sin reigns and people die. It's that death reigns, and sin then is an orientation to death. That's Romans 5. but Actually, that's just what he's doing in these first several chapters. He said, look, so this is the condition, and God's deliverance then is a deliverance from out of that condition. But it's a universal condition, the whole idea of, of nationalism. Oh, Japan's a mud swamp where Christianity can't take root. Why, why would that be the case? Well, it's the case because it's the mirror image of a Western nationalism, and Christianity, as it was being foisted upon Tokugawa, Japan, was a colonializing ideology that was softening them up to be taken over. Christianity was a weapon, and that's the way the Japanese read it, and I think they read it correctly. And so the mm-hmm. Christianity that we have is also the product of a modern identity, you know, all the things that go with modernity, including the nation state. And and we're just so inundated by the very thing that Shusaku Endo is calling a mud swamp. Oh, we live in the mud swamp. And the reason we cannot read the gospel and perceive it for what it is, is because our understanding is so corroded. If you can't name this thing, if you can't see the way that it's influencing and shaping, I mean, you go to Japan, that's the, everybody goes to Japan. They say, Oh, look, look how these people are disciplined by the culture and they're made to, Oh, well we're disciplined by our culture too, but we just can't see it because we live and move and have our being in it. Mm -hmm. And so I think the structures that are being named are definitive of what people do in religion, in culture, in Mm -hmm. modernity, you're always going to discover the same structure. There is great insight into recognizing the particular manifestations of that structure. Tim and I were talking about, you know, what is inspiration or authority? I'm assuming this is, for me, this is partly what biblical authority is, that it allows for a deep uh, reading uh, of the deep grammar of the human condition such that we can apprehend then the structures of an ideology that we just should i think presume that we're going to encounter that's there in the whole i don't know if you all are familiar with orientalism what what is the the strange orient and you know the the c- comparison and contrast between the orient and the occident oh it's just more of the same stuff to imagine that we can naturally escape this thing that has been put upon us that people are the products of their environment. Is that too harsh? Unless they're delivered from it. They don't know that because that's the nature of, of swimming in the sea that they're in. So if someone said, well, then what is, you know, what is the good news? How would you answer? We're delivered from sin and death through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And sin and death is always going to reveal itself in a dualism that begins in me. This is why I have a great appreciation of the Cartesian cogito. It's exactly wrong in a very profound way. I presume that's not just modernity. I mean, that is the mouth founding of modernity. I presume that that dualism, that dividedness, you know, John does the same thing. Light, darkness, life, death. We're always working in dualisms that are false, that are apparent. And that's what Paul's describing as the dividedness within himself that Uh is characteristic of what he's calling the law of sin and death. And so we're saved from the law of sin and death through the law of life in the Spirit. And the law of sin and death, I am presuming, is universal in every sense. It applies across the board. It's, and, it's, and the lived reality of it is a sort of shame, a felt shame, a psychological condition. I mean, this is why Hegel is such a genius, is that he describes this. Again, he's better than Descartes in that he creates an entire world system that, of course, is wrong in a very insightful way. It's wrong in the way that the law of sin and death is wrong. But that we cannot apprehend this thing apart from a retrospective understanding. To imagine that you understand what sin and death is apart from the revelation in Christ, I think you're just going to miss it. That's what theology has done. Once you say the re- the resolution is found in the resurrection, the resurrection move that front and center. Uh. There's no room for resurrection in contract. Well, I'll be- people believe it, or maybe they don't. It really doesn't matter. Well, there's no, but there's there's no room for it in natural theology. No, because death reigns and death contains the truth. It'll never get you
1: to the resurrection. Natural theology will never get you to the Trinity. It'll never get you to the resurrection. And so if the resurrection is central, unlocking the problem of sin
2: and death, then you ain't never going to get there without... You cannot get there. You cannot even diagnose your own problem. This is why I like Freud so much, because he's he's just more of the same. It's more Hegel. Psychoanalysis is Hegel-applied. But he's right. I mean, he's right in the way that he's wrong. The cure that you're going to get from the psychoanalyst is the same cure that you're going to get from the Buddhist and the Hindu. But they're going to manipulate the categories that they presume are absolute uh, death. This is the significance of Hegel. He just names it. He says it's nothingness, it's death. it's, uh, It's the significance of Heidegger. He says, oh, it's nothingness. But it's also there, you understand, in Zen Buddhism. They just say, oh, it's nothing. You do sometimes see it just named. Oh, it's death. But other times, it may go under another name. It may go under the name life. Because isn't death simply a crossing of the river? Isn't death simply a passageway in the lie? That's what you can get in a lot of religion. Death is nothing. Well, the last enemy is death. And if you can see that, then you can understand how resurrection is the resolution. So it's a very simple thing. What's the problem? The body of death. What's the body of death? It's this dividedness, this alienation that is everything. The knowledge of good and evil, but it's human experience. We create worlds out of this. It generates the worlds that we inhabit. That it's all grounded in this divided alienated, antagonistic identity through difference, is one way of saying it. Now What is our problem? The body of death. Is this, I'm just doing Paul here. What's the resolution? The body of death is made nothing through the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, this is the Lacanian, there is no sexual relationship. Just that you can't coordinate, you know, that's what Paul's saying, I can't coordinate my mind and my body. I just got married and I thought, what is this? <laughs> It's disappointing. (laughs) I've waited so long. (laughs) For the Christian, there is. The notion that we are two things is a lie. We are not two things.
1: That's good. That's a simple way to put
2: it. And the way that we are united, reconciled, in the way that the body, I'm just doing Paul here, and I, I sometimes think people think I'm strange. But he's, he's describing, he's always sexualizing salvation. Think of Romans 7, 1 to 4, but he does it in many places. So the, the resolution to the antagonism that he often pictures as a male-female antagonism is being joined to the body of Christ. There is a sexual relationship, but of course we don't mean sex. We mean that the body, that we are now ourselves. It's no longer that, oh, I have a body. No, I am part of the body of Christ.
1: Can you give us? You, you said a cool thing. We are not two things. Can you give us some examples of how we often imagine that we're two things?
2: Body, soul, spirit, body, mind over and against body, heaven, earth, flesh, spirit, every dualism in the world light, dark, east, west, inside, outside. You can just go through the way that people do identity. You know, this is Hegel does it with just the simple word, this. This, my son, actually, one of the first words he learned was the word this. And he would point at something, and he'd kind of cock his head, and he'd say, this? As a question. How, how do you answer that question? It could be an infinite question. Because everything is potentially this? <laughs> and Hegel deals directly with that. He said the, the word this has no meaning apart from <laughs> not this. He doesn't mean that as some sort of linguistic convention. He means that as a metaphysical reality. This is grounded in negation, in death, in nothingness. And nothingness, death, and negation give meaning to all that is positive. Life and death, good and evil, only have their meaning The positive only has its meaning in and through its negation. That's where Western philosophy ends, at least if you're not doing analytic philosophy. The resurrection that negates death, so to speak, so now it's just life. That's it. There isn't two things. There's just one thing. Is that what you're saying? The resurrection defeats death and the dividedness that is death. Right. My mind says the dividedness equals the division <laughs> of body and spirit. Fucking <laughs> dualism. Yeah, there is no dualism. See. The dualism is, is the lie of sin. This makes things even worse, I'm afraid, from our, for our good friends in the churches all around us. Because in popular Christianity, they're all still dealing with their, their souls going to heaven when their body dies. Right. That is the lie that is directly the lie of sin that Paul says, if there is no bodily resurrection, we're all still in our sins. Even if you accept Jesus into your heart and you say he died for my, for my sins. If you do not understand the resurrection is what saves, you're still in your sin. He's saying that to Christians.
1: I guess I struggle from a purely uh, existential or pastoral point of view or whatever about between who I am and who I want to be, that's two things. <laughs> You're out. Am out? Is that what you said? I'm out? <laughs> yeah. I, I knew it. I'm just going to close it. I'll talk to you guys later. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go do some heroin. I'll see you guys later. Uh,
2: that took, I, I did a sermon on this while, a while back. Paul says, I think what he's describing is that we're always going to be departing If our identity is in marriage, he goes through the various things, being slave or free, you know, go through all those things. If your identity is in those things, you're going to have to always be departing, because in a sense, it will never be enough. You can always do better. Donald Trump can always find one more woman. What do you mean by always departing? Relinquishing, sacrificing what I have for what I do not have. Mm. That's just the economy that we, the the human economy that we live in. That's human lust. That's human desire. You know, what we want is what we don't have. If we have it, by definition, it's not what we desire. Right, right. Desire Mm. is for it, that is why it's always a forbidden desire, or it, that's why it's, sin is always connected to desire. You know, and this is exponential, and this is why you know this is the the origins of child sacrifice. I think this is what the idolatry scene is picturing, is an exponential desire in which the phallic idol is unachievable. Just described a terrible, terrible
1: thing. Think about. I, I mean, this is that was something that whenever I read it in your book, I went. Man, this our situation is dark. What you just said was, if we have it, it is by definition what we don't desire. Yeah. That is a terrible predicament. Think about it. So once you have it, you by definition don't desire it. Desire is always beyond what you actually have. And you would, And what we would do is we would sacrifice that which we have for the desire for the thing that we don't have. And that is the law of sin and death.
2: And so we live as if not. You know, We suspend that whole system. We understand that marriage, culture, status, slave-free, ethnicity, whatever it is, that that status that is definitive of what it means to be human will always set us into that sort of drive and desire in which we are undone again it's that punishing thing that paul begins romans 7 7 with i did not know what it was to covet apart from the command thou shalt not covet i mean
1: again just in purely existential terms is that desire is a recipe for unhappiness that's just the bottom line it's a discontentment it's a covetousness desire that its very nature is exponential you can't fulfill it it breeds more desire. That's what you always say. Laplan says, you know, desire, desires, desire. So that the problem, then, as far as I'm understanding what you're saying, is is that is desire per se.
2: Desire may even be the manifestation of the death drive. It is the, the thing itself. It's our experience of death.
1: Desire is our experience of death. That's desire, what
2: desire is a lie. This this desire we're describing the lie that we're describing this whole idea of being subject to a lie. It's not like, Oh, I cognitively, you know, go through this. No, we experience it directly. And the way we experience it directly is in and through human desire. That, and that's the lane. I'm just using Paul here in Romans seven. It, it is not there in Romans eight desires undone. And so this thing that's killing him is desire. So it is the direct experience of deception. This is, by the way, this is, you know, Rene Girard, too. But desire for what? We're, we're talking
0: about sin, right? We're not talking about holy and righteous things. If we desire those, those are fine. So desire is not always
1: equated with the death drive.
2: That's right. There is the picture in the Psalms of desiring God. And Paul, he purposely shifts vocabulary. That he doesn't use the term, I've forgotten the Greek word that he used, in seven, but he purposely shifts vocabulary. But you're right, and in that sense, I think Tim, you're right about Augustine. The thing that we would fill our heart with is not God. In other words, our desires are themselves discordant and misplaced.
1: I was just we, uh, my friend uh, Tom and I just worked today at a. It's a Christian discipleship center. It's a rehab. It's a drug rehab. It's a. It's a Christian discipleship program. And we just went around, the guys were describing exactly what we're talking about, not in quite these terms, but what they were saying is, is that why, what is it about me that I'm willing to throw everything away for nothing? So in other words, I'm willing to throw away my, my marriage so that I can have, I'm not content to just be with my wife. I want to be with everyone. I'm not content to just be sober. I have to, I'm willing to throw everything, including my life away and my freedom away for nothing, to get high. For something that I know isn't gonna satisfy me, for something that I know might kill me, it's probably definitely gonna land me in jail. It's gonna destroy my relationship. But nonetheless, there's this drive in me, this willing to throw everything away For what I ultimately, in my better moments, know is quite literally nothing.
2: I'd say your rehab friends are much more advanced than our philosophical friends who literally describe the drive to achieve nothing as the proper goal. That's true in Nishita, in Zen Buddhist philosophy. I mean, that's the whole point of Zen Buddhism is to achieve nothingness, nirvana. Heidegger picks up the same thing. The, the nothingness, it's there in Hegel.
1: Why does that desire, Paul, I mean, I think this is a, such a, like a uh, tremendous uh, conversation. I think it's fascinating. And so I'm wondering, why, why does desire feel so good? If it's the experience of death, I think you're right, by the way. I think you're right. I think that if it's, if it's, if it's, the, if it's the direct experience of, of deception, I don't know about you, but whenever desire rises up in me, I feel alive.
2: You like I feel, it. I like you, it. It's the life force.
1: It's the life force. You Lacan, Lacan say never give way on your desire because it is life. Because it is life. And so what? I mean, what is that thing? Whenever you're like, ah, I want it. I w-, you cut right. It's like you see it and you want it, or you hear it, or whatever it is. You know, uh, something rises up in you, and it feels like you're uh, you go from sort of the mundane. It's kind of like a transcendent moment or whatever, where you kind of. You know, you're lifted up out of the morass of just regular, you know, human being and into some sort of realm uh, of, you know, maybe even this is the experience of heroin, by the way, I can tell you firsthand that you're you're sort of lifted up into the realm of the godlike bliss, uh, that there is a sort of ecstatic, euphoric experience. Really, you want that desire, by the way, I think this is probably, you know, this is this is what happens with uh, the sexual stuff you were talking about earlier. You know the whole thing about the sex drive thing is that you want your desire to be as strong as it can possibly be. You know that in some ways, maybe this is this requires you know the threat of death, as you said, with or, or or something. You know, maybe it just requires pain, or maybe it requires shame, or maybe it requires you know some woman calling you names and beating you with a whip, or just whatever. It is. Like you know, it's it's something you know that has to get you really going to where your desire is exponentially lifted
2: until, I don't know what, until maybe you die. Until life and death are at stake. And this is why, you know, the Kantian categorical imperative, you know, that I would only do that, which I will. And then he describes, you know, he says, what's the function of the law? He said, well, imagine a man that was going to commit adultery and, you know, put build a gallows, and he'd know that in the morning he would be hung. And Kant says, well, this would surely deter him. And I think what Paul would say is what Zizek actually says, that some of us cannot enjoy a night of pleasure without knowing a gallows awaits us in the morning. Desire is mixed in with death. Knowing that these things deserve death, they do them anyway, precisely because it deals in death. That is the power of this thing. The drive for death is mistaken as life. That's precisely Paul. I
1: see. I always hear people say, I mean, you know, this." We, we, we might imagine this is like a really academic conversation, but I hear people say all the time, why do I always want what's bad for me? I, you know, I want the chocolate. I want the drug. I want the sex. I want the gambling. You know, I want the thing that's bad. I desire something that I know is ultimately not the good.
2: Yeah. Is this like the numbers of people we're hearing that are Going up Mount Everest continually, and huge numbers are dying every year because they just have to do it. And twenty, thirty die a year. And these are
1: very wealthy, educated people. These, you know, it's twenty, fifty thousand dollars to run up Everest. But what, it's not going to happen to me. I deal with people every day who go buy narcotics mm-hmm. that they're not exactly sure what's what they're buying you know the powder is just white or whatever they don't know if it has fentanyl they don't have yeah. but that's part of that's part of it the part it's part of the uh, of the allure is the sort of risk wow
2: you know that was the interesting thing interesting is probably the wrong word about the original entry of aids into the homosexual community radical homosexuals were not in, at all discouraged in their sexual activity knowing that they would get aids in fact, that made it all that much more worthwhile because now they're dealing in life and death. It's on the line. Yeah. You feel more alive in the face of death. Yeah. When do you feel more alive than when you're about to die? When I was in the
1: midst of uh, a really bad heroin addiction, I thought that I wanted to die. I remember I OD'd in my dad's uh, bathroom, and I saw a mirror in front of me, and I literally saw myself turning blue, and I, was, I saw myself slipping away. And every fiber of my being wanted, to, every fiber in my in me wanted to live. And I
2: was convinced that I wanted to die. You were deluded. Wow. I think that this is the sin and death. And in one form or another, it could be philosophical, it could be political, it could be transgressive, it can be law keeping, but it's always going to deal in these categories. How do you achieve the pantheon of the gods if you're a good samurai? only by laying down your life.
1: How do you go into the same pantheon if you're a United States soldier or maybe same, the same thing.
2: You you're a good Christian who lays down your life for your country and you will be immortalized.
1: We we even have a name for it, we call it the greatest sacrifice. You don't really become, you know, a true gang member. You know, we work with some guys who are involved in gangs. You know, the most revered gang members are the members that gave their
2: life. Yeah. So that's the reason I would say that one eighteen is not natural theology. You're raising more questions than answering today. (laughs) Oh, man. Okay, is everybody getting the the point with the word justice or justification or righteousness? When Paul says the righteousness of God is revealed, I think once you look at the Old Testament literature, this is going to directly apply to the, the conversation that we're having. Could you just do a quick reminder of what you mean by that righteousness of God? The righteousness of God revealed, he's talking about the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk is describing that we're surrounded by our enemies. He's crying out for God's righteousness, and what it means, God's righteousness is deliverance from slaughter and literal slaughter because he's, he says we're just like meat on hooks. We're like so many fish hooks. But where is your righteousness to deliver us from death? And Paul is quoting Habakkuk, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed now in Christ Jesus. It's not a theoretical righteousness. Here is the answer to the prophets. They were continually crying out for the revelation of the righteousness of God. In Christ, that revel- the, the, here is righteousness. Here is things being made right because he's going to defeat the final enemy which is death which in one form or another is the way that the principalities and powers of this world this is what our enemies this is what the nation state this is what is done to us and this is what controls us right good thank you perfect and once you get the Douglas Campbell does a little bit of this with sovereignty the term sovereignty and the davidic messiah that sovereignty you know, we think of that in terms of a kind of contractual, well, no, it has to do with the sovereign over the chaos and over death. And the, the king is a, you know, the Davidic king is a figure who delivers, who saves. You know, that's the whole picture of the messianic king.
0: You know, the difference between faith in Christ and the faith of, of Christ. And so in the first one, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the sinner. Uh, to stand before God without guilt or shame, but it is not a holistic uh, problem solver. You know, why would God see us as innocent if we broke the law and Jesus got, you know, gets killed because of our breaking of the law, which is what Matt was saying earlier. And then the other one, which would be the faith uh, of Christ is that Jesus is faithful to God's salvation plan, and so we participate in his work. This includes faith in Christ and the faithfulness of Christ in ours. So it is a universal or holistic solution uh, to a universal problem.
2: I hope that uh, resonates there, buddy, because why would faith save? I think a cognitive kind, there's a disconnect. What's that got to do with anything? I, I believe, I believe real hard. This faithfulness is inclusive. It's a whole Listener's prayer. Yeah. Just pray the prayer. Just believe in your heart. The faithfulness of Christ is a faithfulness in obviously in the face of death. The faithfulness of Abraham is a his life course then. Is he doesn't do what the Babylites do. I don't know if I get, you know, the, the contrast there.
0: I was thinking that this also like this reading, faithfulness does solve the you know apparent problem between paul and james you know people always compare that you know paul is talking just about faith while james speaks about works about obedience but when you put the word faithfulness then that includes both things there's no contradiction between james and, yeah. and paul yeah. they're talking about the, the exact same thing so you don't have to do the uh marcionic thing and just take it away
2: <laughs> yeah from your bible yeah faith certainly involves us in action in ethics in a lifestyle in an understanding it is not a ethnic identity as in works of the law and that's the that's the whole point of the new perspective is
1: maybe you start with a sort of mental assent right or cognitive sort of faith because i remember believing for the first time and going you know what i think that this really is something that i have to do. But you got to start, I guess, with some sort of decision where you kind of got to go, well, okay. That manifests itself, I think, right, in a, in a, a live sort of faithfulness.
2: Let me suggest an alternative. Okay, Pascal says that if you don't believe in prayer, kneel down and begin to pray. I was often critical of that, but I think there is a truth to be found there. That is that where does belief reside? I mean, that's what we're talking about. Is it simply cognitive? I, you know, I do the whole thing. You've all heard it in, about the Japanese. Are the Japanese religious? Well, they practice their religion. I think the way that we believe things is, in fact, a thing that we do. A belief that does not give rise to an action or is not connected to an action would be a worthless sort of belief, wouldn't it? And it may be that belief, in fact, comes to us in a way that we would not expect it to, that we kneel down that we, we begin to practice, and then the belief is subsequent. Some days my cognitive failure may be such that it interferes, but I hope that my participation in the body of Christ will still be such that I'm practicing my faith and my faithfulness, even should I be in a period of darkness and doubt, so that it does not depend simply upon my cognition. The way that Zizek has put it, and I I understand that this could be done too, too far, you know, when you talk about the mandala or the prayer wheel, it's a Buddhist thing. You take the the prayer and the priest spins it, or you can spin it. And the spinning of it is the prayer. That is that the, the practice of the thing is key. You, you've heard the thing with Heisenberg, you know, the horseshoe story. Somebody comes to his house and say, oh, Dr. Heisenberg, I... A man of great learning like yourself, mm-hmm. I can't believe that you would put a lucky horseshoe up on the wall. He said, I just wouldn't think that a man of your caliber of intelligence would have. He said, oh, no, no. He said, I don't believe in the horseshoe. But as I understand it, that it works even if you don't believe it. <laughs> And what I'm saying is, I know there's a problem there, but I'm also saying that, yeah, but belief is actually something bigger, more mm-hmm. holistic than simply our cognition.
1: First of all, I thought that you were talking about Walter White from Breaking Bad with your analogy there.
2: That's what I thought too. <laughs> but,
1: uh, <laughs> I just meant uh, good one. I, I was thinking of the, the Kierkegaardian decision, so that, you know, that a decision, on some level, you have to make a decision to act yeah <laughs> All right, good talk.. Right, everyone enjoy your night.
2: <laughs> I think I got it that that you do the leap, and maybe sometimes it is you you kneel and pray or you leap and and you're not quite sure, but uh, and so i'm I'm allowing for that, or I'm allowing that some days I will let you all do your my believing for me because maybe i'm going through a dark time but i know that you believe yeah and i'm dependent upon you and so i think we can be interdependent it doesn't simply depend upon my cognitive abilities and so the church you know and i mean by the church not an institution but a group of people that we know and love may be doing and aiding and uh, so in in that sense i think that we do need to tie belief to practice and practice to belief, and the one without the other is meaningless. James says. All right, Alan, what's uh, what's another one we should talk about? Uh,
0: you know, to suppress the truth is to practice injustice. You know what uh, Romans one eighteen says, and so this uh, suppression of truth leads to worship something other than God, which would be an idol. So exchanging God for an idol uh, results in exchanging uh, your humanness for a distorted version of it. Uh, a different, you know, identity or a misinterpretation of your identity. So that leads to immorality, uh, which is, you know, a confused identity that will make you perform deeds that are unfitting for humans. This applies very well to our discussion of natural theology, because in in a sense, I think that's suppressing the truth. And so instead of leading us to the uh, uh, solution and to the problem, actually, we just kind of skim through it. And so we are telling a lie, preaching a lie, you know, we're preaching the law of sin and death more than we actually preach the law of, of life. That uh, whole idea that, that sometimes we have, especially in restoration movement, I think we fall in the same problem that the Jews did. You know, we have the Torah, so we're good. And in restoration movement it's like, oh, we're the ones that have the truth, so we're good. <laughs> when in reality we're preaching the complete opposite of of, of what Paul is saying in, in these chapters. And so we are falling into that suppressing of truth. So we're practicing injustice by doing it. We're just multiplying that perversion.
2: I mean, the scary thing here is that I, I think that there is a Christianity that can sell us the lie under the auspices of the truth of Christ. And it does that in a dualistic theology. Mm-hmm in which it would give us the same sort of departure, souls going to heaven, but also departures from real-world engagement, in which we literally end up with Paul's formulas that once (coughs) you do the dividedness, you will end back up in the logic that you must do evil, that grace may abound. What you do on the left hand will will bring the rewards on the right hand. And so the, the dividedness will always result in the law of sin and death. I'm afraid that there is an evil Christianity. Surely we should not put those two words together. But I'm afraid there is such a thing in which we are, in fact, convincing people of a dualistic reality, a God that, in fact, does not engage in a a kind of real world, defeat of the law of sin and death. A perverse Christianity, Paul is saying, is worse than paganism. He says that in First Corinthians 15. The perverse Christian has erased any hope whatsoever, and surely we should not end on that dark note.
1: <laughs> you got to do a blog where you expound upon stuff on desire and the stuff on dualism. I think you're hitting on something there that I need to think more about, but I think it's really good that those you you yeah. said those those two things that and it always gives rise to a sort of epistemology right that, that we have to do evil so that good may come so however you do the split light dark inside outside good bad this that life death all these different ways that you explained it that you said that the, the sort of live reality of that sort of way of thinking always presents itself in, in doing an evil so that good may come even if that evil is condemning ourselves right? Or shaming or, you know, or sort of beating ourselves or being masochistic towards ourselves or whatever. And then I think that desire has to be sort of perversely tied into that even at, the, you know, even, even from an epistemological standpoint, right? That, that there's a, there's a cognitive sort of desire that's death dealing.
2: Yes. And the way that Paul says it is, you know, he's saying, is the law sin? Well, let's go with it a minute. The law is sin. And so you establish the law through sin.
1: That's the only way to truly establish the law, to make sure that it's lawful, is to transgress it. Yes. You break the law to establish the law, to, to give it a reality, to give it a,
2: some sort of concrete realness. The power of the law is, in, in a real sense, and this is, this is Zizek, but I think it's also Paul, that we would sacrifice, in order to think of the, the sacrifices people make, that the sacrifice in some way makes real the thing that we are sacrificing to. It gives it its power. It's the same formula. The death dealing nature of the lie is that we imagine that in dealing in death that we're gaining life. It's the that the sacri- it is a sacrificial economy in which sacrifice enlivens, gives blood to this thing. And that's the, the great tragedy of imagining that the sacrifice of Christ is just part of that economy. You make the sacrifice of Christ the sacrifice that, in fact, is an establishment of the law of sin and death. Christ doesn't do more death. It's not just more death, payment of death. That's propitiation. That's, that's paganism. The gods, why are the gods hungry? Because by feeding them, we create the gods. I don't know why this, I've been doing this for years. Just recently, I've realized that I'm saying a very simple thing. I think Paul is saying a very simple thing that is very profound in that it applies in every direction, but I think we cannot get at it. I've already said this, but I do think it's all retrospective. We're going to apprehend it. We understand sin through salvation. We understand that the resurrection is the resolution to the problem. What a contractualism does is, is the same thing we're describing. It creates a meaningful system in and through the system, right? Right. The, that the meaning is in the letter of the law, and so you create the meaning in imminent to the system. That's the human system of the knowledge of good and evil. That you generate the meaning in the system. All right, it's been good, good conversation. Excellent. All what right, you about? great conversation. Appreciate all your help. We soared. <laughs> all right, good night, everybody night. Have a good one.
0: Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.